0: So the third episode of Why You Should Care is being brought to you by Umina Legal Group. Umina Legal Group is my law firm, and we provide legal services in three major areas, business law, personal injury, and estate planning. As always, I'm offering a free 30-minute consultation for all listeners of the podcast. Just say, hey, Obi, I listen to your podcast. Welcome to the third episode of Why You Should Care. Every episode, we take a look at a local political issue, and hopefully, by the end, you'll know why you should care and what you can do about it. I'm your host, Obi Umina, a lawyer and political consultant born right here in Jacksonville. My firm provides political consulting for local candidates and statewide. Currently, we provided services for several sitting elected officials, as well as Andrew Gillum's run for governor last year, where we won Jacksonville twice. Local politics is my business, but what if it isn't? This podcast is designed for you. One more housekeeping item. I'm not a journalist. I'm a political consultant who normally works for Democratic candidates. So this podcast may have some bias. So do your own research. You'll probably find out that I was right. But please don't bother me about this podcast being biased. With that out of the way, I want to get into the topic for this episode. Today, we're going to talk about an ordinance presented by Councilman Garrett Dennis to decriminalize marijuana in Duval County. Duval is the only major county in Florida that hasn't passed a bill like this. Councilman Garrett's bill is actually modeled after Palm Beach, the Palm Beach County bill that basically says any possession of under 20 grams, the officer has discretion to give a civil citation. While decriminalization doesn't make it legal, the difference is significant because instead of arrest that goes on your record, you're given a ticket similar to littering. This episode will discuss the outcome of that attempt to decriminalize. So I can't go any further without introducing my co-host for this episode. Very happy to have him here. Shelton Hall is a columnist for Florida Weekly, who actually does a column on cannabis. Shelton, thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Shelton also shares my love for old Jacksonville Free Press community pages and has grown up in Jacks. As someone who's grown up here, what have you seen as the biggest difference from Jax as a kid to Jax now?
1: I would say that probably the biggest difference between now and, say, 30 years ago is the, the city's perception of itself and the city's perception around the nation at large. Here in Jacksonville, especially in our lifetime, there's always been kind of a balance to be struck between the need to modernize and develop add new stuff, bring new people, as is always happening here in Florida, and the need to sort of uphold and preserve our natural history. And you see that with a lot of development issues. We want to put in new stuff, but then the new stuff that we're putting in is kind of taking the place of classic buildings, classic architectural features from the past. So on every level, on an almost individual level, there's a wrestling between who we are now who we used to be and who we want to be in the future, and that's probably true even on an individual level. That's something I think about every day in terms of my own career. I think
0: Jacksonville, you would probably say, has had a constant identity crisis, right? Yes. It's funny because that will come into this uh, issue as well. Why do you think people should care about decriminalizing weed?
1: Well, there are a number of reasons. I think those of you out there who may partake of the substance yourself, or may have had your own dealings with it on a legal or business level, have your own reasons, which are pretty self-evident, I would say this issue is really going to be decided by the people who aren't regular users or maybe have never used the stuff themselves at all. And if I were speaking to them, I would say that the number one reason to care about decriminalization is that decriminalization would free up significant law enforcement resources in terms of police man hours, human resources at the prosecutor's office the public defender's office in addition to bed space in our jails and prison that we could get out a lot of these people who are in there simply for nonviolent possession and then direct those resources towards issues i think we all agree are a bit more pressing such as uh, sex crimes cybercrime, human trafficking domestic terrorism things like that and that's been an area in which around the country Law enforcement in particular has been, they've been pretty open to the idea of decriminalization on those terms. There's a group here in Florida called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, which is a network of former sheriffs, current and retired police officers that have seen this issue unfold with their own eyes over the decades, and they are in support of of legalization. Another matter would be, well, getting back to the legal thing we've seen with states that have decriminalized so far, arrests have been down. Violent crime has been down. None of the negative outcomes that were predicted at first and were always part of the old stereotypes, none of that has come to pass. Another area that would make it relevant to the non-user would be just a quality of life. This issue is driven largely by our huge veteran community here in Florida and uh, the large proportion of seniors here in Florida. It's a great way of battling against the opioid crisis. It's a great way of dealing with matters related to PTSD, chronic pain, things like that.
0: So as we always do at this time, this is a part of the episode where we go through a timeline of events around this bill so people can see kind of how we got here, right? And that's what the name of this segment is, How Did We Get Here? So Wednesday, May 8th, Garrett Dennis files a bill. And before I get into everything with the bill, I want to give some background on what is happening statewide. Counties and cities all over have passed the same type of bill. Big counties like Miami-Dade and Broward, smaller counties like Alachua and Volusia, and then every major city in the state has also passed this this type of bill. One of the things I wanted to throw out here and answer a question that I know I'm going to get is, how can we decriminalize weed if it's against the state statute? And I want to throw some background here. And why is it 20 grams, which is the question I get a lot. In state statute, in the Florida state statute, 20 grams is considered a misdemeanor. Local cities and municipalities are allowed to give a civil citation or a ticket for anything that's a misdemeanor. They have that control. And so what has been happening in these places is that basically they've seen that 20 gram limit and they've said, we have decided to make that a civil citation instead of an arrest. So the next day, we lost a huge media campaign for this bill. And I'll say we because I actually worked with the councilman on the rollout and the launch of that. We had an exclusive with Eric Alvarez. Shout out to Eric with First Coast News. And once we did that, we had news organizations from all over the city. We started getting calls from everywhere. What was your first thoughts when you first heard about that bill?
1: Well, my first thought when the bill first came along was, number one, that it, it was a matter of time before that happened. It was something that people had been talking about for quite some time, especially since Amendment 2 was passed that legalized medical marijuana back in late 2016. Once that began to be implemented in 2017, as you noted, cities and municipalities around the state began making their own efforts to sort of move the ball forward a little bit on it. We have uh, efforts going on now to try to get the stuff legalized statewide. If that action works out, it wouldn't be until November 2020 when that is passed and not until probably January 2021, when it would begin to be implemented. So a lot of cities, particularly larger cities like Orlando, Tampa, and Miami, have begun moving the ball forward a little bit on their own account, driven largely by um, seniors. You know, Over half of the medical marijuana patients right now are above the age of 55, so it's not exclusively a youth-driven thing. And also, law enforcement is taking the lead. Well, not so much taking the lead, but they're not doing the obstruction that would normally be there when Rick Scott was governor in 2017-2018 he really sort of tried to block every effort to implement amendment 2 so processing of of medical applications was slowed down there were still arrests happening there were issues with um, banking interests as you saw with Nikki Fried who mm-hmm, had banking mm-hmm. issues with her campaign now that and Nikki Ro-
0: Fried is the agricultural commissioner
1: that's right and it's worth noting that in 2018 The same voters that elected a conservative Republican, Ron DeSantis, as governor, by a fairly narrow majority, elected Nikki Freed, a liberal pro-pot Democrat, as a secretary of agriculture by an even larger margin. She got actually more votes than Governor DeSantis did. So DeSantis has essentially sort of stood back and allowed Nikki Freed to really lead the way in terms of implementing these policies. So let's go
0: back to the timeline. And so that, I was on the scene and we got incredible positive response from the people, but we got a very different response from the mayor and yes. the sheriff. Can you talk about how they responded?
1: Yeah, I'm a big pro wrestling fan. and wrestling, there's a term called kayfabe. And what kayfabe basically means is that when wrestlers are in the presence of non-wrestlers, they pretend that everything you see on TV is real. And as it relates to this is, as you know, uh, even better than I do, the chatter about this issue that was occurring within the halls of power, behind the scenes, off the record, was very much different than what was being said publicly. When the bill was first introduced, I remember writing at the time that it was basically dead on arrival for reasons that had nothing to do with the substance of the bill itself. Whether It's unclear whether there would have been enough support to get it passed and whether the mayor would have signed it, even if it had been passed, but The number of votes that the bill got on the record does not correspond to the number of uh, votes it would have gotten, say, had it been introduced by a different congressman, I mean, different councilman.
0: Mayor Curry's chief of staff said in a written statement that this bill would be encouraging police to ignore state and federal laws. And that seems contradictory to ensuring our city's safety. Right. I mean, as we talk more about the bill, you'll see how absurd that statement is. I think this is a good time, though, to kind of. Talk about the relationship between Mayor Curry and Garrett Dennis, because that's really kind of the backbone of how this all played out politically, right?
1: Absolutely. Well, traditionally, our mayors, going back to the days of Godbold, uh, Austin, Missouri, John Delaney, John Payton, have tended to, well, with the exception of Godbold, have tended to be more on the conservative side of things. But there was always sort of a, a rough consensus. The Republican. It's a majority Democratic town, but the Republicans have a better organization, so they tend to run everything. Democrats sort of did their role fairly well as a loyal opposition. When Alvin Brown came in as mayor back in, I believe it was 2011, he won by, I believe, 1,500 votes out of something like 400,000 casts. So he came in on a very narrow majority as a liberal Democrat, and he promptly began to have bits of his coalition shaved off, starting with, most notably, the HRO debacle. Mm-hmm. And that opened the door for him to be defeated by Lenny Curry. Curry came in, and you know, I'll say personally as a journalist, and as a journalist who has criticized the administration extensively in print, on social media, etc., my dealings with them have always been just fine. I call them with a question. They answer it promptly. They're always polite. They're always very nice to me, but what I hear anecdotally is that their personal style may be lacking in terms of dealing with their nominal opposition. So what's happened with Garrett Dennis, it's very similar to what happened with Anna Brochet. We know a little bit about some personal disputes that may have occurred, and a lot of that has to do with Brian Hughes, but really, I don't really know exactly what the issue is between the two of them. What I do know is that because of Dennis's uh, relationship with City Hall, any bill that he put forth would have a much lower chance of passing than it would if it were introduced by, say, Crescent Benny or Matt Carlucci or Terrence Freeman or any of a number of other Congresspeople.
0: They don't like each other. I mean, no. let's, let, I mean that's to simplify it, right? I think it's personal. It's personal, and I think in it, I'll give a little bit more history on this. And I think what's interesting is that they started off as friends, right? I mean, yes. I think. I'll give a comic analogy, you know, Superman and Lex, right? They yeah. started off as, as buddies. They worked on the uh, Eureka Garden situation together. And then, you know, things happened and that, that friendship kind of went separate ways. And yeah. now on both sides, it became personal. I think, you know, Garrett Dennis has said stuff about Mayor Curry and Mayor Curry spent $80,000 to get him out of office. There's a personal beef there. And that's really what is going to drive this bill. So, right.
1: And a lot of money was spent to get Dennis out of office, but it wasn't successful because Dennis does have uh, very strong relationships in his community as a council person. He's still very young and you know the road is still onward and upward for him as a politician. I'd say that for Curry, likewise with DeSantis and likewise even with the president, these are conservative Republicans who in increasingly polarized times they have, to their credit, recognize the need to at least give the semblance of good relations with the African-American community. So you talk about things like Eureka Gardens. They look for opportunities to find common cause and to reach across the aisle when um, necessary. And I think this cannabis thing, given the way other politicians in the state, in the country, have reacted to it, could potentially be an area for collaboration down the line, maybe next year. Perhaps the uh, push to legalize statewide may help move the ball forward on this a little bit, I would note that President Trump has uh, said on a couple of occasions that if a legalization bill was put in front of him, and there are a couple percolating up in D.C. right now, if the bill happened to come before his desk, he would strongly consider signing it, which, oddly enough, puts him to the left of Joe Biden on this issue, Mm -hmm. who still holds the Mm -hmm. whole gateway drug, which Mm -hmm. is a thing going back to the 1930s.
0: What I think is interesting in this, the personal part of this pushed Mayor Curry probably more to the right than he probably. I mean, I don't know his thoughts on the issue, but and he hasn't said his actual thoughts. Yeah. And we'll get into that. But like, you know, I think the whole personal thing was made him say, hey, well, we're not. Whatever your bill is, we're not gonna be a part of it. So let's move along in the timeline. So May 15th, the following week, it goes to his first reading in city council. And part of what we'll do this episode is kind of give you the timeline of how a bill goes through city council. So once it's introduced, it goes to its first reading. Nothing happens at that. Then after it has its first reading, the city council president refers it to a committee, maybe one or two different committees, where it goes to a first reading in those committees and nothing happens. And then so it comes back two weeks later at the next council meeting and where it is what is called a second reading, but also there's a public hearing, right? And a yes. public hearing is exactly what it sounds like. It's the opportunity for the public to actually weigh in on a, any bill. So let's. I wanted you to talk a little bit about the public hearing for the bill and just public hearings in general if you wanted to. So.
1: Well, sure. Uh, I was not present at the public hearing myself, but I could hear the screaming from across the river mm-hmm. where I live in Riverside. I believe ultimately the vote was, I believe it got about two votes or two or three votes out of 19, which is, not at all consistent with the public record. The Political Opinion Research Lab at the University of North Florida, which I wrote about in this week's column, they did a poll recently that shows, I believe, about 67-68 percent of Duval voters are in favor of decriminalization, and that number is consistent with uh, similar polls that were taken statewide and were taken in other counties. We've seen many other cities in Florida have already begun moving forward on this issue based on popular sentiment. In 2014, when medical marijuana was first proposed, the legislature raised the threshold for passage from a simple majority of 50 percent to a supermajority of 60 percent. And at the time, it only got 58 percent, 58 and a half percent of the vote in 2014. Two years later, it ended up getting 69 percent of the vote. So that's an almost 50 percent increase. Well, about a 40 percent increase in the vote total that it got from the people in just a two year Period. So the numbers show now that if it was put to a vote of Duval citizens, now, of course, the number of people who actually vote versus the percentage that respond to polls, right, right. that's always iffy, especially right. in this town. Right, but right. if it's put to a vote, it has never failed when put up to a vote in any state or any city in this country so far.
0: One of the things that what I saw at the public hearing and kind of echoing what you said earlier, it was a mix of people that were in support of this bill, old people white, black, all different types of people had wanted to move this forward. Right. I mean, it it was a interesting time because there was a a huge amount of speakers that wanted to come and speak on this. But one of the things I wanted to take some time to talk about is kind of the African-American speakers and wanted to talk about, you know, the elephant in the room and the racial disparities about the prosecution of marijuana.
1: Absolutely. Let's talk about that. The drug war has always had those issues and let's go back to the very start with the marijuana tax act of 1937 which is what first made marijuana illegal it was the drug war and particularly the uh push against marijuana from day 1 was always postulated on on racist postulated in racist terms you look at movies like Reefer Madness where they say oh you girls go smoking marijuana they end up hanging out with black people and Mexicans and listening to jazz music that was taken as gospel for decades. It's only been in the in the last 20 years, you know, in our lifetimes, that this theory has sort of been exposed for the lies that they were. Harry J. Anslinger, the um, former head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, who is, I believe, a nephew of Andrew Mellon, who was a Treasury Secretary at the time, he testified before Congress multiple times telling stories about starting first with an incident downstate in Florida— about people who smoked a bunch of marijuana and ended up committing homicides, ended up raping people, things like that. Later studies showed that out of 200 different cases he cited before Congress in his testimony over the years, 199 of them were proven like patently false. And as far as racial disparities go with law enforcement, you know, that's something across the board. I mean, it's not just marijuana. It's, it's sex crimes. It's murder. It's jaywalking. Even it's traffic tickets. Even The African-American community has a vastly disproportionate share of the arrests for marijuana possession relative to the, the overall use within the country. So they naturally have people like Garrett Dennis have a natural affinity for this type of legislation. Cory Booker, senator for New Jersey, who's running for president now, he uh, is a former mayor of Newark in New Jersey. He's introduced something called Marijuana Justice Act, uh, I believe, last year which would, you know, decriminalize marijuana, it would reschedule it, take it away from— it's currently federally classified as a Schedule I narcotic, which is the same level as cocaine, heroin, opiates, etc. And it would also begin the process of clearing out a lot of these convictions associated with marijuana. We were talking about the 20 grams rule earlier, why that classifies a misdemeanor. Much of that is anecdotal because, I mean, 28 grams is an ounce. And I think most people would figure, well, an ounce, that's one baggie, that's personal use. If you're a regular pot smoker, you know, 20 grams would be like a week's worth of joints or a week's worth of blunts or something like that. So the theory is 20 grams, that would be for personal use. But if you've got like several ounces or a quarter pound or a pound, then you're getting into the area of trafficking and you're selling it to, you know, for profit, which is a whole different area legally. Now, the Marijuana Justice Act with a, you know Republican majority in the Senate is not likely to pass anytime soon, but similar bills working their way through the Congress. And since they have a Democratic majority there, that could possibly pass at some point in the future.
0: I want to throw out a stat and move through the timeline. But one of the things that I thought when I was doing some research on it, there is no race that smokes weed more than the other race, right? That's right. But African-Americans are prosecuted at four times more than Caucasians. And I think that's where this issue with this bill is, is that, you know, and I know Garrett, Councilman Dennis, was wanting to kind of release people from this type of persecution. After the second reading at city council, Mm -hmm. it's referred back to committees to kind of fine tune the bill. That doesn't always happen in real life, but But it basically goes back to them so they can kind of fine-tune the bill and send it back.
1: Refine the language.
0: Right. And so what we decided to do is we knew this was a heavy lift. So we actually deferred those bills in committee so we could do some public meetings. We did about four public meetings around the city.
1: Outside of his own district. Outside
0: of his own district and traveled really to kind of get people to talk about that. I don't know. Did you make it to any of those?
1: I did not but I talked to people who were at the different meetings and you know there was great diversity in terms of race in terms of gender in terms of demographics which reflects the the fact that as I said before 67% of Duval voters are in favor of decriminalization
0: I got to make it to one of them and it was in Northwest Jackson what what I didn't understand was the stories that we were starting to hear right People losing their license. Yes. People, once they lost their license, they're not able to get to work. Right. Just, you know, not having enough money to make bail. Mm -hmm. Right. So they're stuck there. I mean. People
1: losing custody of their children.
0: All over. Losing
1: their health care.
0: All over small amounts of weed. Right. And I think that's what was missing, even from my knowledge, was how personal this became for a lot of people. Something happened in July around the same time as we started to have those public meetings which began a trend around the state, the state attorney in Tallahassee decided to stop prosecuting weed cases because hemp was now legal, Mm -hmm. and there is not a lab in the state that could test that. Talk a little bit about that.
1: You know, the difference between um, smokable cannabis and hemp, it's the same plant. It's the female plant that contains the THC, which is the psychotropic chemical in marijuana that produces what we think of as a high, whereas hemp Hemp, the same product that's used for industrial products like clothing, paper, things like that, is also the same plant that is distilled to make CBD. CBD oils, which are very popular now, that's the stuff that aids in uh, anti-inflammatory and pain relief, things like that. The issue is, to the naked eye, they look essentially the same. And if you were to burn them side by side, they smell the same. Now, it's not like a lot of people are smoking CBD hemp, it doesn't have the THC in it. So people are more likely to use oils, edibles, things like that. But, you know, the smell of marijuana or the perceived smell of marijuana was always one for probable cause. And you talk about people getting busted. A lot of what that is, is people smoking in their cars and like you're stopping at a traffic light. You can, you know, people will hot box a car. Mm-hmm. And so there's a clear sensory indicator that that stuff is going on. And a lot of people believe that the police forces are naturally racist and, and all that. I don't know about that. I think in this case it's more a matter of low-hanging fruit, same as like having a traffic light out or driving without your seatbelt or texting while driving. It is the job of the police to bust people who are breaking the law. And if you're doing so blatantly— and doing it right in front of them, then you're more likely to get busted.
0: It's probable cause, right? Yes. You need probable cause to be able to pull somebody over. You need probable cause to be able to search the car. Yes. And when marijuana is not decriminalized, then you can go with probable cause. When it is, you have less probable cause to do all these things, right?
1: And that's why the Tallahassee is moving in that direction, which is why Miami is moving in that direction, which is why places like New York, D.C., and Philadelphia have already moved in that direction because— if the police smell hemp and they arrest you for possession of marijuana by the time you go through the court system and they you know, test and they say, no, this is not illegal, they have every right to use this, blah, 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 you're still stuck with the legal costs. You've still been arrested. Your name has still been out there. So a lot of the social consequences are still going to be felt whether you're actually guilty of a crime or not. We saw back in 2016 a, another initiative that passed was Amendment 4, would provide a pathway to eliminate, to restore voting rights for felons. And a lot of people who are stuck with felonies in the state of Florida and around the country are stuck with felonies because of nonviolent drug possession cases. And we've seen up in cities like Cincinnati, Detroit, and most Baltimore, most recently under Marilyn Mosby, and most particularly in Los Angeles and San Diego, they've begun the effort to eliminate a lot of felony convictions for people with marijuana possession cases. And over in California, there it's something like over 40,000 felonies have been cleared out. This is real action for real people's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, Felony mm-hmm. convictions can undermine people's ability to get a job. It can affect child custody disputes. It can affect things like health care. It can affect things like insurance for property, insurance for cars.
0: I want to talk about our local state attorney has been very silent on this issue and I believe that has a lot to do with the politics of this town yes she uses the same consultants as the mayor they're from Mm -hmm. you know same party as well but you know one of the things you'll realize is that it's parole violations right I mean a lot of these things are used to hold kind of people down oh yeah and they can't move forward and I will say you know I spent some time in J1 court which is the first court that you get when you get arrested Mm -hmm. what I saw to their credit, the state attorney were, when there was multiple charges and there was a marijuana charge of under 20 grams, they would drop that charge. So they did drop a lot of those charges. The issue is though, when there wasn't a second charge, they would still hold on to those charges and that's always an issue, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of what the problem was with that. And so these charges aren't going away, it's a rest on their record, you know, all of these are reasons for probable cause to get searched and do all these other things. The other option that was being floated was what's called a first appearance, which means they would just drop it when you get to court, but you still have the arrest record. Yes. It's still hard for you to get a job. Mm-hmm. And so that isn't a viable option, in my opinion, to work. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what's going on statewide in these bills, not just for decriminalization, but also legalization. If you wanted to talk quickly about what's going on in Tallahassee about decriminalization and then we'll talk also about what's going on statewide.
1: There are a couple of bills working their way through the legislature that would seek to decriminalize people have flowed the idea of doing full legalization. Now the difference between the two is decriminalization says well it's still illegal but we're going to reduce the criminal penalties on it whereas legalization you know, means that there will be no criminal penalties at all because it's legal. Mr. Hughes noted earlier the idea that passing the decriminalization bill would have encouraged police to ignore state and federal law. For my conservative friends, I would think that's not really an argument worth making because, you know, we should be encouraging individual police officers walking the beat and individual prosecutors to, ha- and individual judges to have a measure of autonomy and ability to police their territory the way they see fit. A lot of these people who've been stuck with insane jail sentences And stuck with felony convictions, it's been because of mandatory minimums, which were forced, especially on the federal level, forced onto judges by Congress in the 1980s. And many police, many prosecutors, many judges in this city and others have rebelled against that. Now, the decriminalization bills that are pending in Tallahassee, none of those really have any chance of Mm -hmm. passage Mm -hmm. because uh, we have a conservative governor who, like the president, might sign the bill if it came before his desk. But with Republican firm Republican majorities in both bodies of the legislature, it's unlikely to get enough votes to pass through either house at this point. Now, come next year, 2020, if Democrats can take a majority in uh, both houses of the legislature, which I think is almost certainly unlikely, then it could happen. But in the meantime, the onus is really on individual cities and munis- municipalities to begin evolving the law as they see fit and to the governor's credit and to the White House's credit. They have made no attempt to intervene, to stop individual cities from making these moves as they like. That This sort of rhetoric about states' rights in this particular case is proving to be true.
0: So I wanted you also to talk about the two kind of constitutional referendums that are coming on the ballot that may or may not make it to the ballot. If you could talk a little bit about that.
1: There are two bills that are essentially the same. One is being run by Regulate, and the larger perception is that's the more grassroots bill. That's the one that the on-the-street activists, and most people are sort of in favor of. That's through Regulate Florida. The second one is through um, Make It Legal Florida, which is more of a consortium of local, I mean, of state dispensaries, which have already invested, you know, hundreds of millions in building these storefronts all over the state. We must have dozens upon dozens of dispensaries that have opened up in Florida just in the last couple of years. The difference between the two, both would decriminalize marijuana, both would, uh, you know, eliminate criminal penalties for possession, but the regulate Florida bill would allow for people to grow their own marijuana on site, which is something that the courts have already given permission to in the case of Joe Redner downstate. Joe Redner was a, uh, He owns a bunch of clubs in the Tampa area, and he was fighting lung cancer. His doctor recommended to him that cannabis would be useful in fighting his cancer, but because it's lung cancer, of course, he can't smoke it. So they recommended that he juice it. The doctor told him that he recommended that Redner consume seven ounces of juiced marijuana per day. Now, if anyone has seen marijuana, you can imagine how much marijuana it would take to generate seven ounces of juice every day. So the um, courts basically allowed him to do that, and I don't know if he's followed up with it. One allows you to grow,
0: one doesn't allow you to grow, right?
1: That is the real root of the dispute between the two bills, and that's why there are two bills. Make it Legal Florida, which really represents a lot of the dispensaries, they are firmly opposed to the home grow concept, which is why they started their bill, their petition drive, second, Mm -hmm. but they've drawn a lot more money. And, you know, the Regulate Florida people believe that make it legal Florida as opposed to homegrown because it would cut into their profits as dispensaries. Now, personally, I always like to cite the case of, you know, it's legal to brew your own beer. It's legal to start your own distillery. You know, we all like to drink beer, but are we going to go brewing our own beer at home? No, we're going to go to one of these thriving craft beer Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. craft distillery places, which have grown widely. And as a result of this uh, division, it's kind of like divide and conquer, except they're not being divided and conquered from the outside. We have two groups that are working independently on these petition drives. Both groups have, I don't think either has, even 100,000 verified signatures at this point. And they need how many? They need 766,000 signatures signed petitions by February 1st. So even if both groups were working together and going at full speed and there was no dispute between the two bills, let's say they had 200,000 signatures, let's say they had a quarter million, they would still be very far behind the pace that they need to get those 766,000 by February 1st. And then you still have to verify the signatures. There's all types of rules with how the uh, veracity of the signatures can be challenged. It has to be verified through the state Supreme Court. So there are still a couple of other hurdles to jump, even after the the 766,000 were submitted, and only then would it make it onto the ballot. And presumably, once it's on the ballot, voters would vote for it because statewide, this sort of uh, magic 67% number, which is uh, 7% above the 60% that's needed for passage at the ballot. In theory, it would pass, but the question is, will it get onto the ballot? Now, Make It Legal Florida in particular has had a big influx of cash the last few weeks. That hasn't really translated to an increase in signatures. We'll see in a couple of weeks at the end of the month how much of a spike we've had in November. But right now they are very much running from behind.
0: Yeah, and I call this kind of the activist dilemma is, you know, what happens in policy and politics is that, things don't happen at once, right? Activists kind of want everything at once. And much respect to these people that are going out to fight for this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But you have to look at it as a process, right? I think what they should really should be working together, pull their funds. They really should be working together if this is something that they really want to move forward. The problem is that either side is not willing to give. And that's always going to be a problem in this where they ultimately want pretty much the same thing
1: you know they have the support for their cause out there they could be working together to isolate the different groups they can target our veterans community our senior community young people college students the beaches the music and art scene these are natural constituencies for them but so much of their their time their energy their resources and their public commentary has been about tearing down the other side's bill
0: Right. And I think that's the thing that if if anyone wants to take any kind of political kind of, I would say, advice from this is, you know, don't try to eat the whole pie, right? Try to Mm -hmm. take a bite, try to find a small way to get something across the line and then come back again, because that's the only way our government is set up Mm -hmm. for policy. We have a government that's set up for not very fast changes, for slow changes. I want to go back to the timeline a little bit, because after Councilman Dennis did these public meetings, It went back to committee. It got voted down in both committees. And I'm not going to talk about the votes there. I'm going to talk about the overall council votes. And so after it got voted down in committee, it still goes to council for them to have the final vote on it. Getting voting down in committees are just recommendations. And obviously, you know, if you are following it all, it did get voted down in full council. Yes. I wanted to read you a few of the quotes from that council meeting and just get your responses on these things, right? Councilman Al Ferreira, it's going to attract more crime to these areas crying for help. Please do whatever you can to stop this from coming.
1: That's not true.
0: Councilman Ron Salem, who's a pharmacist, said that beyond children with seizures, cannabis was not trusted in the world of prescription medicine.
1: That's not true. And in terms of the world of prescription medicine, I don't think pharmacists in Florida should really be talking about this at all given the role that they've played in building this massive opiate crisis that has killed thousands of people across the state of Florida, that's a suspicious comment to even make on the public record.
0: I'll throw this out there. Who is the biggest kind of backing of fighting legalization of weed? Do you know who that is in the state?
1: At this point, I don't think there really is any. Now, in 2014, when Amendment 2 uh, for medical marijuana was first going through, all the polls uh, had them ahead of the 60% threshold coming into the last couple of weeks before the election. But then a guy named Sheldon Adelson, who owns a bunch of casinos out in Vegas, he's a big-time Republican donor, he flooded the market with a bunch of uh, ads, what some might call fake news, uh, commercials featuring an actor in a doctor's lab coat who pretended, without attribution, on television to be a doctor, saying that this was medically irresponsible, blah, 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 and this was just blatant propaganda of the type that goes back to the 1930s, 1940s, and because of that propaganda, they were able to shave off just enough public support that it came through, the bill finally came through with 58.5% of the vote. Now, had that vote been six months earlier before the threshold was for passage was changed, it would have passed, but as it was, they missed it by about a percentage and a half. Now, two years later, in the absence of... Um, this negative propaganda, it passed by a wide margin. At this point, I don't think there really is any official aggressive. Push One of the against things it.
0: I want you to, to look up, because I live in that world, publics. Mm. And it's not necessarily publics itself, but the pharmacies. Right? Yes. Pharmacists in general, CVS, some of these places that make money off of selling drugs sure. have been the ones that have come out the hardest against against decriminalization, against yeah. legalization. I was going to read Aaron Bowman's clip, but I think it's fair for me to play it.
1: Um, and normally I just vote no on this bill and just let it go. But this one I think is so significant that the, the residents of Jacksonville, the people that are thinking about moving to Jacksonville, need to understand that we have laws and we support them. What worries me most about this is that if we pass this bill, it creates a safe haven in Duval County that people from Georgia and the surrounding counties will go, I think I'm going to go to Jacksonville because I know I won't get in trouble. And then and that puts more people on the roads. Uh, I can't support this. And uh, uh, that's how I'll be voting. I'll be supporting the committee tonight. So let's talk about that. I mean, well, I'd say that if Councilman Bowman is really so concerned about Northeast Florida being like a safe haven for criminals, maybe they should do a little bit more to fight human trafficking. Maybe they should do a little bit more to fight the gun show loophole and the social media gun loophole so that people in Atlanta aren't coming down to Florida to get their guns when they go back up there to shoot people. I don't think Georgia or any other state is concerned about what's happening in Florida. That particular quote, as with the other quotes you've read, it's fake nonsense that dates back to ancient propaganda that has already been widely discredited. And their words, that runs counter to the official established opinion. Now, of course, some people don't believe in the polls, but the same polls that say 67 percent of Floridians support legalization of marijuana or decriminalization. These are the same polls that say Trump will be reelected in 2020. So if you're conservative, you have to decide what you believe what and what you, you like. do
0: yeah. One of the things I think that's so ridiculously wrong about what Councilman Bowman was saying was like, I mean, people aren't driving across straight lines to smoke weed. I mean, that's no. just not what's going to happen, no. right? I mean, and then the fact that every other big city and county already has that, what is the motivation for I that, mean, right?
1: Cannabis is one of the few plants that can be grown effectively in any climate. It can be grown in the light, it can be grown hydroponically, it can be grown in the dark, it can be grown under people's desks, it can be grown in closets. As we've seen already, when they legalized it in Washington state, they legalized it in California, they legalized it in Colorado. That did not correspond to any spike in marijuana use here in Florida. And the fact is, Florida has been synonymous with the plant going back generations. I don't know if he's ever been to the beach. I don't know if he's ever listened to a Tom Petty album. I don't know if he's ever listened to any Leonard Skinnerd or any 38 special. I don't know if he's ever heard any Miami bass music. But marijuana has been here for quite some time already.
0: So the bill was voted down 16 to 3. And when a bill is voted down, it basically can't come back for another year, yeah, just to kind of finish out the progress of a bill. If it would have been voted for, then would move to the mayor, and the mayor has an opportunity to either veto it, pass it, or let it sit on his desk unsigned. And I wanted to do that on this podcast. I wanted to talk really about the Democrats that voted against this. Yes, And I don't like to call people out, and I actually like all of these people. I think it's important for us to know... That, you know, this is a bill, which we talked about earlier, that has a huge impact on the African-American community. Huge impact. To have Democrats and then Sam Newby, who's a black Republican, to vote against this,
1: to me personally, is sad. I know Councilman Newby a little bit. My general rule is I don't set foot in City Hall unless someone pays me. (laughs) I wouldn't begin to speculate about the motives or the morality of the people, how people voted on this. I would suggest that anecdotally, had the bill been proposed by someone other than Dennis, I think overall, and this may be a factor in some of these comments, I believe that Councilman Dennis's toxic relationship with the mayor was itself the decisive factor in how this entire process has played out. If this same legislation had been introduced by a different council person, we might have been able to flip a coin as to whether it passes or not, why Democrats would vote against it, why they would you know, sort of sell out their boy on this issue. The only thing I could suggest in response is that the Democratic Party, just in a general basis here in northeast Florida, the Gen- Democratic Party in Jacksonville, is probably the weakest Democratic Party. Of any city this size in the entire country, they have the majority of the voters, and they lose time and time again. They didn't even bother running a, a candidate for mayor here in 2019. They they end up leaning on Anna Brochet. Didn't give her proper support. They had was it maybe five Democrats on the council now, five seven. I'm not sure, but they lost what they already were in the minority, and they lost even more positions. You know, it takes someone like Andrew Gillum coming in or someone like Barack Obama or Bill Clinton to even get these guys like, you know, to get them to like button up their neckties effectively. They couldn't fight their way out of a wet paper bag and they've handed victory after victory to the Republican Party on the statewide and, and national level. Now, Gillum was able to win Northeast Florida, thanks in part to a strong core of activists here and in part to Gillum's own personal charisma and his willingness to not just leave it in the hands of the locals.
0: And I'll push back on you a little bit on some of the stuff that you said. I think I look at it in a more kind of micro level as obviously these particular council people, for whatever reason, felt that the pressure from the mayor was too much to bear. That's really where this is. I mean, after you're elected, there's only so much the party can necessarily do for you. Mm -hmm. I think the issue here is more about You know, when I look at somebody like Councilman Pittman who runs Clara White Mm -hmm. and there's so many people that she deals with that have these drug charges and have these issues, Mm -hmm. how you could vote against this, you know, based off of maybe a personal beef between the mayor is not the way we want to go. I mean, I think that's what I'm talking about. At some point. Right. Mm -hmm. You're elected for a reason. Right. And I think anyone, especially a Democrat, especially an African-American, after you see the things that are the drug War has done to the mm-hmm. community. Yeah. to not offer a chance for relief. Oh yeah, to me is well, absurd.
1: And I, I totally agree. Now, a cynic would argue that if it wasn't for the drug wars, if it wasn't for the drug war decimating uh, the natural leadership in some of these communities, some of these people might have never been elected to office at all. You know, some of these guys. You know, no offense to Sam Newby, but you know, a lot of the black council folks and with all due respect to Dennis and Jacoby and who are, you know, powerful people in this community, if you compare them to the types of black leadership that we had here in the 1980s or in the 1970s or even in the early 1990s, it's a dramatic step backwards, you know, in terms of capability. In ter- this idea that, take newbie for example, he's a second-term councilman. He was already reelected. He's not going to run for anything again. Like, I don't know how he thinks he's going to get a state legislature spot you know, or something like that after this is done, why is he bowing to pressure to the mayor? What kind of pressure is there going to be? Is the mayor going to hold up funding for like a homeless shelter because Jacoby Pittman votes the wrong way on a particular bill? Curry wouldn't do that because Curry has larger ambitions. I think a lot of this pressure is just sort of words and actions are a different thing. We haven't seen, we've had a lot of tough talk out of City Hall, but we haven't seen a lot of. You know, actual direct retaliation. And if you look at what's happened with the local party, you know, they lost the battle on Lot J, they lost the battle on Metro Park, they lost the battle on the Landing. They got their butts handed to them in this last round of local elections, taking a defeat unprecedented in the entire history of democratic politics in this city. And they're still saying, "Oh, we're bowing to pressure." It's like, why does the mayor have to pressure people? That will already just lay down and do what he says right. without any pressure at all, right? Because we're talking about people's lives. People I are agree. dying because of this. People are fighting cancer, and it's and it's something that this is a rare area of bipartisan consensus the, across the country. How can Black Democratic City Council people actually end up to the right of Donald Trump on the issue of cannabis?
0: The other two votes for it was a uh, uh, Councilwoman Priestley Jackson. And Councilwoman Morgan. So yes. those are the two people that you know voted with Garrett on that bill. I wanted to you know yeah. leave some time for predictions. Yes. Yeah. Wanted to get any predictions from you about what happened in Duval or statewide with cannabis or decriminalization. What your what your thoughts are?
1: Number one, I think it's unlikely that the decriminalization bill will make it onto the ballot next year. It could still possibly happen, but it won't happen through the uh, sick through the signed petition route. Maybe the legislature, perhaps Nikki Freed and DeSantis will get together to kind of push the idea through the state legislature to get on the ballot because that is what the people want. I think this idea of you know, removing criminal penalties and clearing out some of these past convictions, that's going to gain more steam statewide, nationally. I think local prosecutors, maybe even our local prosecutors here, may begin taking up some of these initiatives we've seen in places like Baltimore, Detroit, L.A., San Diego, as far as Councilman Dennis's bill, I think that this particular piece of legislation will be brought up again and again year after year until it passes for probably the rest of our lives. as someone who supports the bill. I would hope that next year the bill is introduced by you know a more moderate, well not to say more moderate, but someone who has a better relationship with City Hall, you know, a Carlucci or maybe a moderate Republican, maybe a conservative Democrat someone other than Dennis, I think if the bill comes up again, it would have a much better chance of possibly being passed. Yeah,
0: but I think his name's always going to be on it. You know, he was the one that was willing to kind of put this bill out there in Jacksonville politics. I mean, it took some courage to do that, right? I mean, I think his name is always going to be attached to this. I mean, even if somebody else comes on it or not, right? I mean, that's
1: true. That's a problem with branding. I mean, it's good for him. I think it's good political courage on this part. I I think it enhances his reputation citywide and it enhances his personal brand moving forward as a politician that it makes this happen. Now, it may be that maybe Garrett Dennis will run for mayor himself in 2023 and then push that through. But I believe that if they can get the bill back up for a vote again next year, it stands a better chance of going through. And I don't think it would pass if it was a put up next year, but if I were to make a prediction, I would predict that one way or another, because we don't want to keep falling behind other cities in the state, by summer 2021, they will find a way to get this passed, and if it does pass, I believe Lenny Curry will sign the bill.
0: Legalization is coming to the state. It's not now, it's not if, it's when, right? My prediction is that we'll see this bill again, probably next year. Mm -hmm. Maybe the temperament of the city will change a little bit. Curry is more of a lame duck at that point. So his ability to apply pressure is a little bit less.
1: And with Curry having, like, according to rumor, having designs on some statewide office, I think he'd be a very interesting person to succeed DeSantis a few years down the road Mm -hmm. as governor. And if he wants that, this would be something he would want to support.
0: So I definitely see it coming back. I do think it's a stronger possibility of it getting passed. Also, I think there'll be a more organized response Mm -hmm. now that it's out there. I think when we talked about policy, it's about doing it in bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. Now it's out there. It's out in the open. People are talking about it where they weren't talking about this here in Jacksonville at all before that bill was proposed. And so I think those are the things that make this thing possible. It makes it happen. You know, of course, I believe this bill should pass for all the reasons that we talked about. Overcrowding, limiting racial disparity with read
1: prosecutions.
0: Also, the benefits that places that have had decriminalization have had, lower crime rates, right? All these type of things. We're talking
1: uh, potentially a billion dollars in revenue.
0: The bill just makes sense, right? Yes. It just it just makes sense. But the other part is I don't want to live in a city where we're starting to make our policy decisions based on personal beefs, right? Yeah. I want to live in a city that we make policy decisions based on what is best for our citizens. Mm-hmm. But if those aren't good enough reasons for you, one more thing I wanted to put in there, you know? Every major city in Florida has passed this bill. Not only every major city in Florida, every major city in America has passed a law like this. And we talked about this in the very beginning of this episode about this inferiority complex that Jacksonville has, right? We need to stop being behind. We're one of the last people to pass this bill. I grew up here. We've always had this little brother syndrome, right? We've always had this little brother syndrome to all the big cities that are around it. But instead of stepping up to the plate and moving us forward, we constantly let our leaders keep us behind, right? If you really want to see progress in this city, we can't talk. We can't keep thinking like we're Smallville. We have to look forward and start thinking like Metropolis, right? That's right. We are a big city. We need to act like one. We need to start moving forward instead of continuing to stay in the past, right? Yeah.
1: We're playing catch-up to cities that we are older than. We're older than Orlando. We're older than Tampa. We're older than Miami. The rail lines that facilitate the growth and development of all those cities in the 20th century came through Jacksonville. We have an ownership stake in everything that's happened down to the south of Florida. So why are we playing catch up? And no disrespect, I mean,
0: cities like Daytona have this bill, right? I mean, yeah. if we want to move our city forward, right, this is a small issue in the grand scope of a lot of things. But this is common with this city is that we— we continue to stay behind. Right. Yes. Instead of moving our city forward, we continue to want more for our city. But we don't elect leaders that have any type of vision about where we should go forward. I want to always leave. I always want to end with you know, what you can do. Right. Yes. If you want to get involved in this, if you feel passionate about this issue, I will leave some links to some of those statewide organizations that we talked about before that are doing the statewide legalization. Obviously, on the city bill. You can't do anything until it's brought back up next year. Sure. When that happens next year, you know, if you want to get involved, I'm sure you'll see something on it. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you, Shelton, yes. for being on the show. This was fun. Yes. It was fun to do something with you know Duval Native. Absolutely. As I always end this show, I want to tell you, voting is just the beginning of your political obligations. If you really want to see change, you need to be educated, engaged, and activated. Till next time, why you should care.